0: Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritize their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Meg Durham, and I'm thrilled that you're here today. Today, we're going to be talking about well-being at work. What does it mean to be well at work? What does a school need to do to make sure staff are well at work? And what do we need to do to make sure that we are well at work? When I first started out in the wellbeing space over 10 years ago now, the focus was really around student wellbeing. Students don't have the skills to navigate the ups and downs of life. We now know that there are skills that we can teach, so let's make it happen. Let's talk about student wellbeing. And then I got really curious around teacher wellbeing. If we want our young people to feel good, function well and have better relationships, what are they seeing? What are their role models doing? And that's when I got so interested in teacher wellbeing because for so many teachers and me included, I wasn't taught the skills to be well. I wasn't taught how to make good decisions and how to show up in relationships. It was kind of done by osmosis. And so we know that there are skills that we can all learn to be well. To make better decisions, to have more confidence in our daily life. And this is where I get so excited. Imagine what is possible in workplaces when we have a shared language, when we know what our definition of well-being is for the system, but also for us. Because as educators, we go through different seasons of our career. We have times in our career when we are available, we have so much time, we have so much energy and we're willing to give so much. And there are other times where we don't have the capacity. We have people at home that we also need to be there for, dependents that are literally dependent on us. And so well-being looks and feels very different when it comes to being an adult working in a workplace. So today's guest is going to help us explore this a little further. Daniela Falecki is the founder of Teacher Wellbeing and is known for keeping it real. I always love my conversations with Daniela because we have worked with so many educators across Australia and we have seen patterns that show up time and time again. And to be able to share this conversation is so important because I hope that as you listen to this conversation, it inspires you to think in new ways. It helps you to see things that you haven't seen before. And hopefully, empowers you to take deliberate action. Daniela brings us a wealth of experience. She has been a teacher in different systems, over 25 years of experience, and really focuses on the intersection of positive psychology, positive coaching, organizational psychology, and best practice. And so together, we're going to really explore what does it mean to be well at work? And who's responsible for our well-being at work? So in this conversation we discuss how staff well-being is different to student well-being. The importance of taking deliberate action. Why creating time to stop and think is so important and so much more. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Daniela Faleki. Daniela, welcome back to the School of Well-being podcast. Hello Meg, always a pleasure to be here. Today we're going to be discussing well-being at work by focusing on the areas of job demands and job resources. Why do you think this is an important topic?
1: Well, firstly, when it comes to well-being, you and I both know having worked in the student well-being space for many, many, many years that well-being at work for adults is different to student well-being. Now, one of the biggest mistakes I see schools make is they try and get their student well-being programs and map them across the staff well-being, mandating mindfulness, mandating gratitude, everyone doing their strengths and what have you. And while those initiatives are really good, we really need to draw on best practice and organizational psychology, not just student well-being knowledge that we have. So demands and resources theory is one of those There's one of those theories, there's many theories, but it's one of those theories that I think is so simple and so explicit in helping me understand why I'm tired, why I'm stressed and why it matters.
0: I love that you bring that up about that way that we can often work in schools that, yes, we've got this student wellbeing piece, we'll just make that a teacher version and how that doesn't work and often so many educators don't identify that the school is a workplace. They feel like a student going to school in times and the way that they work and really making that distinction and highlighting that we are in a workplace and workplace wellbeing is very, very different to student wellbeing.
1: Absolutely. Even if we look at pedagogy, I mean, we've all heard the word pedagogy, which is the art and science of teaching children. But not many educators have heard of the word andragogy, which is the art and science of teaching adults. How adults learn is different to how children learn. How adults grow and engage with their own professional learning and their own transformative thinking is very different to how students learn. When it comes to student well-being and pedagogy, we provide students with basically similar experiences with differentiation and what have you because they don't have past experience typically. When we're working with adults, adults are not blank slates. They're coming with different ideas, different interests, different values, different cultural experiences, different backgrounds, different worldly experiences. So we need to respect that. And when it comes to staff wellbeing initiatives, we need to invite people to participate, not mandate. We need to provide a diversity, consider inclusion, We need to provide options for people and we need to respect that people are allowed to say, no, that doesn't work. Yes, because there is no one size that fits all. You know, I often say to people when I'm running a workshop, because, you know, my company is Teacher Wellbeing and and has, you know, the big logo on the front of the the booklet, Teacher Wellbeing, and I get people at the start to say, put a big line through the words teacher wellbeing and right underneath it, how to be a better human, because really that's what we're talking about. How can I just be a better human at work? And a lot of people think teacher well-being or educator well-being is, what do I do at home to be better at work? And I say, no, it's how you be at work. It's called well-being, not well-doing.
0: Yes, and really thinking about this idea of well-being at work and how our demands and our resources play an intricate role in how we experience work.
1: Absolutely. I, I like to think of it as a seesaw. I mean, I don't know what your experience is, Meg, but I know, you know, you go on a seesaw in a playground and I would often go with my sister and the first thing you try and do is you try and knock the other person off because that's the fun thing to do. And then the second thing you try and do is you try and balance it. And the reality is you can't balance it. It's always moving. And that's how well being is at work. It's not static it's dynamic and so basically all the demands which is all the stuff I've got to do and then the resources I have to do it with and it's constantly moving up down up down up down and it depends if it's Monday or Friday it depends if it's week one or week 10 it depends if it's term one or term four and it depends also on the resources that we have and the demands we have in our life because let's not forget as educators we don't live in a box and come out at nine o'clock and go back in at three. We've got stuff in life that we have to juggle as well. Yes, and that's
0: something that I talk about more and more, that we have seasons in our career. We have different times in our career where well-being looks really different.
1: One of the first things I encourage people to think about is what does well-being at work mean to you? And typically, beginning teachers will say things like, getting all my lesson plans done. And I'll go, great, awesome, that's good for you. People who've been teaching for 10 years or so will say, actually, well being at work for me is about work life balance because my life at home is crazier than my life at work. People who've been teaching for 20 years or more might say, actually, well being at work for me is just seeing the kids smile because I don't really get flustered by the stuff anymore. So it's different things for different people. And what we need to be doing is having these conversations to say, what does it mean for you? What are the, what are the demands that you're experiencing in this moment? And what resources do we have available to meet those demands? It's such a beautiful
0: framework to get our heads around. So when it comes to job demands, what are they?
1: So many. Firstly, this is not a theory that I've made up by any means. Back in 2001, they basically built on many different types of models of well-being at work. So that's basically where it comes from. But when we're looking at demands, demands are things like Psychological demand, so my own mindset, personal boundaries I set up, the narrative I tell myself. I call those things the internal resources of how I think throughout the day, because we know that how I think influences how I feel, which will influence how I respond. So managing our thinking processes and thinking traps are really important. Other demands include the people demands. That student that's wonderful, the student that has high needs. The parent that is, you know, working with you in true partnership, which becomes a resource. Then the parent that perhaps is very difficult to deal with, which becomes high demanding. Then you've got the colleague who is, you know, your best friend forever. And then the colleague that is your roadblock that becomes demanding. So I call that sort of the people issues. And then the other area is, of course, the systemic issue. So you're looking at admin, compliance, workload, Nessa, all the stuff. We have to do timetabling reports, paperwork. And so, the model that I always like to explain the demands and resources, the seesaw, if you like, is in the layers of there's demands and resources in our own mind, called me, demands and resources with relationships, called we, and then demands and resources in the us, which is the system. So, my model that I use is called me, we, and us. Now, that's not a new model. That type of model has been expressed by many incredible people in many different ways. Sometimes it's referred to as individual team and organization. I know that Professor Aaron Jardin has a wonderful model, Be We and Us. And I also know Michelle McQuaid, who I know you're a big fan of as well, has just released her new book called The Leadership Blueprint. And the three sections are set out leadership for me, leadership for we, and leadership for us based on psychosocial safety at work. So, Be We and Us. And juggling the demands and resources, I think is a really good way to have better conversations about well-being at work that's realistic. It also
0: gives us a really good way to visualize, okay, I've got my job, I've got my demands of my job. Within the demands, I've got the internal demands, the demands I place on myself, and the external demands, the demands that the system people are putting on me. But then on the other side, I've got the resources and the resources are this internal resource, resources that I can build upon and also the resources, the external resources that I can bring in. And how can we manage this? Because it sounds like when we have high demands and low resources, that's not a place that we want to be.
1: No, and that's when we're at risk of burnout, risk of exhaustion, risk of becoming cynical as well. And it's to do with frequency and duration. So all workplaces, especially schools, have high demands. It's the nature of the job. It's dynamic. It's exciting. It's why we love it. But when the demands outweigh resources, we can only do it for so long. I mean, the the simplest way to explain it is, you know, you can only drive your car for so long until the petrol runs out. And the petrol is the resource and driving it is the energy that expends that. If you don't put petrol back in the car, it will stop. So while we can manage high demands, because we're incredible humans as educators, we go above and beyond daily, we're big hearted, we're always thinking about other people. We can't keep going without putting something back in the cup. We need to put something back in ourselves, and unfortunately, We're not very good at prioritizing our own well-being. Now, in saying that, I want to really highlight that educator well-being is not solely an individual responsibility. It's a shared partnership between individuals and the organization. So if we look at the me, the we, and the us, I am 100% responsible for my decisions around eat, sleep, exercise, mindset. That's me. Nobody can do that for me. I wish they could. I wish someone could go to the gym for me, but they can't. I have to go myself, right? The we stuff, we are 50% responsible for all relationships, but we're not 100% responsible for them. And sometimes we blame ourselves for not being able to get through to that student or that parent or that colleague, and we say, what's wrong with them? Or we say, what's wrong with me? So, but we need to recognize we're only 50% responsible for relationships. And when it comes to the us stuff, there's no percentage on that, but the reality is probably about 80% of that we cannot control. And the question is, where are you going to put your focus? It doesn't mean it's not addressed. It doesn't mean that there's things we can't do. It doesn't mean that we don't have these conversations, but it comes down to where am I going to put my energy, where am I going to put my focus, and what type of conversations are going to lead us to solutions, solutions in terms of building both internal and external resources. Yes, it's so important to move beyond that
0: narrative of all or nothing, that it's either me or them or them or me and move beyond that and see it as a shared partnership. As you say, nobody can do the basics for us that's on us.
1: I go into workshops with schools and typically it'll be over two to three years. It will involve a series of professional learning with activities in between. And often it's after the first one. And then I'll go back into the school for the second workshop and I'll say, what have you been doing and what's been happening? Typically only 10% of people have done anything, but they're still tired and still cranky. And I say, no one can do it for you. I can't do the squats for you. Here is a toolbox of resources. You get to choose what resonates for you. But if you do nothing, you will get nothing. We have to be making better decisions about supporting our mental health because we've got physical health and then mental health. We're making daily decisions without thinking about it for our physical health. We make daily decisions about brushing our teeth, eating, eating, when we go to sleep we don't create a strategy for that we just do it but when it comes to mental health we don't have a specific habit or strategy of tracking the good stuff recognizing what i did really well today recognizing how i feel valued validating others recognizing the impact that we're having we're not we don't have that habit yet and we need to be more conscious about those types of decisions to build our internal and external resources yes and i love that
0: idea Of taking deliberate action because we know as humans, we will find a way to survive. We will find a way as teachers to get to the end of the term. We can do that. We know that. But what's the challenge and the struggle for so many of us is we don't know how to be well. We don't know how to thrive throughout the term because we've never had that experience. We haven't had that lived experience in our body. And also thinking about that conversation you had with teachers have you come back after the second session and they haven't really done much? Something that I invite people to think about is not taking action is an
1: action. Inaction is an action. If you're doing nothing, that's a choice. It is. The whole thing is like I say to people, put your hand up if you bought a gym membership and you know, half the room put their hand up. I was like, put your hand up if, if you're paying for it and not going, and a quarter of the room have their hand up. I said, we know that one off staff development doesn't work. We know that reading the book doesn't work. You need to take the action. You need to engage in it enough to say, actually, I matter. And unfortunately, as big-hearted educators, we put everybody else first instead of ourselves. But the irony of that me is that we look to other people to fix it for us. We look to other people to say, certainly executive teams or leadership, say, what are you going to do to fix my well-being? And the answer is, I can't do it for you. So leaders, when I work with leaders, I say, The responsibility of leaders is to create the conditions in which people grow, but you can't grow for people. You can't do the squats for people, but I can create the resources, the opportunity and the connection for you to participate in the process. And sometimes as educators, we rob ourselves of an opportunity because we're tired, we're over it. And we put our hand up and say, I'm not going to participate in that, but I want change, but I don't want that change, but I don't want change, but I do want change, but I don't want that, and what are you going to do to fix it? It's like, wow, we go round and round in circles wanting something but not doing anything to get it, and it's hard. And that's when you become stuck. And then what I've
0: noticed in schools is there will be a few people who are stuck together, and then you see that
1: recreational complaining and that old saying, birds of a feather flock together. And that's when it becomes a little bit toxic. So the three of my keys that I talk about in my sessions are, i call these keys, they unlock the resources, if you like. First one is shifting our mindset, which includes shifting the narrative, focus on what I can control and what, instead of what I can't control. The second one is boost mood. We have this burning desire to feel valued and appreciated, but we don't know how to do it. And when someone says, you're amazing, you're fantastic, we put up our hand and say, no, 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 it's just the job. But then we go home and cry because we don't feel valued and appreciate. And the third one is building momentum. One-off stuff doesn't work. Your well-being week doesn't work. It needs to be ingrained, embedded, and it needs to move from trivial to transformative. And what I mean by trivial to transformative is your coffee carts, your morning teas, your bake-offs, your colored sock day. All of those things are wonderful and they feel good stuff, but it doesn't shift mindset, boost mood or build momentum. So therefore we need to be more strategic about the resources that we provide teachers to help them shift the narrative, to help them shift how they feel so they can better respond in times of demands. Yeah, thinking
0: about it just like physical fitness. We're not going to get fit by doing one workout, it requires that. What a shame. <laughs> Such a shame. And I remember when I was working at the gym, we used to go into reception and the gym that I was working at, it was actually color-coded, the members. And so you knew which members were paid and attending regularly. You knew which ones were paid and have come under half a dozen times. And then this whole group, the majority of the membership were paid Non attending members.
1: We need to participate in, in our own journey. And there's many times, and I know you've experienced this and I've experienced this, we feel like so much is out of our control. And part of the narrative that I share with educators is to say, you do have choices. You do have some control here. Not everything is out of your control. And the part that you do have control is how you respond to the demand. And sometimes we get so fixated on removing the demands or getting rid of them, or changing them, or blaming them, that we forget we have choice. So while demands have to be addressed, absolutely, and that's when you talk about things like how work is designed, how systems are created, those things, you know, do we really need to have 14 meetings in one week? Like, is it really necessary? So those things need to be addressed, but I think we forget that we actually have choices as well. The more stressed and tired we become, the more narrow we become in our thinking. And we know through Barbara Fredrickson's work in broaden and build theory, when we experience joy, love, wonder and awe, we tend to be more open and more receptive and more curious. And by feeling, building our resources to feel valued and appreciated, it then leads us to be more open to exploring different ways of doing it. I mean, just for example, I was speaking to a school yesterday and they have made the decision collectively, too many emails Email overload. So what they've decided is they having three five minute meetings a week from eight twenty of ten minutes. So eight twenty to eight thirty. It's a stand-up meeting in the staff room. This is what's happening today. This is the priority for today and blah blah blah. Instead of sending out emails, just a ten minute meeting, they do it on a Monday to Wednesday to Friday. There's still emails that go around and not everyone can always attend those meetings, but it's a way for people to actually connect get on the same page and it stops some of the sideways conversation or, you know, the phrase, I didn't get that email, which means you didn't read that email. And it's
0: highlighting that emails are a big demand. Like when we started teaching, it wasn't a part of the workload. Emails weren't a thing.
1: I used to laugh when I was organising, you know, whether it be carnivals, versions or communicating as a, you know, with parents as a year advisor. And people say, I sent you an email two hours ago. I've I've been teaching for four hours in a row. I don't sit at my computer (laughs) answering emails. And in fact, one of my um, principals that I work with, I love his email responder. Um, You send him an email and the email comes back. Thank you for your email. I'm busy teaching your children. I'll get to you when I can. And I just think, wow, I love that.
0: And it's such a good reminder because I know I've had times when I've been sitting in the classroom and I've been working on my emails and it's like, quick, I've got an opportunity, I'm going to do some work, students are doing some work, and then I could just get going and you sort of forget, hang on, I'm in a classroom, I'm here to teach, I'm here to be present. And it's coming up more and more and more when I'm talking with teachers that they feel like they're getting into the classroom,
1: everyone's got laptops up, off we go. Absolutely. There's a fellow that I think's amazing, amazing facilitator, Chad Littlefield, and one of his mantras, which I spruik everywhere, is connection before content. And we forget that it's actually connection that we crave. We talk about engagement. We talk about, you know, academic performance. We talk about inclusion, belonging, well-being. Those things are relationship-based. And sometimes when we get caught up in the busyness, we focus on getting stuff done instead of being with the human in front of us. And that's where the seesaw becomes pronounced. Where is your focus? Are you focusing on all the demands, which is all the stuff, paperwork stuff, emails, or are you focusing on the potential resources that are in front of you, which is the connection, the banter, the laughter in the staff room or the classroom? No one way There's no right way. It's just an awareness of what's your way. Yes, that self-knowledge is so powerful
0: and I'm learning over time a lot of educators don't have that self-knowledge because we have been trained to look outwards we have the self-knowledge on all of our students our colleagues leadership parents we could tell you every little bit about them we could write a little essay on what triggers them what soothes them what calms them but it feels like there's this big block to self and once you open that door and educators start to Really take notice of what works for me. What doesn't? When do I get triggered? When do I feel like I shift into survival versus thriving? It is magic what can start to happen.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, with people, I get most of my work is with teachers from 3 30 to 6 30 of an afternoon. So you can imagine how excited they are to be there in the room. I know it's a blessing that I live with every day, but that's okay. That's my choice. I say to people, we're not here to learn new things, we're here to stop, reflect, connect. That's what we're here to do because you've been running like a lunatic and you forgot that you're a human being. You think you are a machine that can run on an empty tank, but even your car can't do that. So it's an opportunity to just practice self-awareness. And I'm always flawed how some people are really, really good at self-awareness and other people not so much. And it's often the people that are sitting in the room, whole staff, and they've got their laptop up or they're eating or they're talking to the person next and behaving like year nine. And you think, wow, and you're the one that's whinging. Have a look at your own behavior, will you? And it's like, let's just have some thought and explore this concept of self awareness. And when I'm aware of me, I'm then able to be, I think I've got better resources to be able to respond as a human being as opposed to this automated robot that some of us behave like. Yes,
0: and what I've seen over time is the educators that start to move towards managing the demands, building resources, moving towards this design approach to work, they start to notice when things get wobbly quicker and they can course correct quicker. So instead of waiting to week 10 when they've fallen apart, They can notice week seven, things are getting wobbly. I've got to tweak a few things here.
1: That's where the toolbox of resources come in. And I say, we know that we have a negativity bias. We know that we have these thinking traps where, you know, we're the fusspot, we're the fighter, we're the fantasizer, we're the faker. We have all these little things going on inside our mind. And if I can't manage my own thinking traps because I'm being really hard on myself, I need you as my colleague to say, hey, stop it. You're being hard on yourself. So we've got this internal resource that's untapped. It's available to us any time of the day, any we choose. And then we've got these incredible resources that are called colleagues that are available to us as well. But sometimes, again, we get caught up in the busyness that we lose a connection with ourselves and lose a connection with others. Hence, we come back to this whole concept of connection before content because that's where we feel valued. That's where we feel that sense of belonging and that's where we actually feel connected to a purpose of why we're there in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I think connecting with that purpose deliberately and often can be really
1: powerful. Very much so. And, you know, I think I've I've spoken to you before about Professor Jane Dutton's work in high-quality connections and how a five-minute energising connection with someone at work can be enough to sustain and buffer me for the ups and downs for the rest of the day. And so I always talk about the meetings that we have. And when I run my leadership workshops, the first question I ask is, think about the last meeting you had were in or gave. Did people leave feeling energized or de-energized? And people say, oh, but there was so much content we had to get through. I said, so you prioritize content over connection. And you wonder why staff are disengaged. Staff are human beings as well. We're professionals at engaging four year olds, 17 year olds, and everyone in between. But when it comes to staff, we forget that that's a human being too who needs to be engaged with connection.
0: Yes, so often we just run in, run through the agenda, run out, and imagine if we flipped that script and thought, well, how would I approach a class? What would I want to bring? So then they do have an energizing experience. And we've all had times where we've gone to a meeting. We can't be bothered. We're thinking about all the other things that we could be doing. And then at the end, you think, oh, that was actually not too bad. Quite oh, like that. That
1: was actually kind of a bit of fun. Absolutely. I always say your meeting, your staff are year nine girls. So, you know, you year nine girls. They're not listening to you or year nine boys. How are you going to engage them? And sometimes forget as leaders, we have so many resources available to us as well. And part of our job, like I said, is to create those conditions for growth, the conditions for flourishing, thriving, you know, the garden metaphor, I will say. You know, as a leader, you're a gardener. And so your meeting time is an opportunity to harness those resources and create space for people to feel valued, recognised and to grow. Creating space is such a skill and so
0: important. I remember early on my journey when I was writing a student wellbeing program, having a conversation with a principal saying that this content actually doesn't mean much because if the connection's not there, it's not worth it. It could actually be detrimental to be talking about these topics if there's no connection in the room.
1: Yeah. I mean, no student lives at the end of year six or the end of year 12 and says, oh, miss, sir, the way you filled in that Excel spreadsheet, that was just amazing. The way you colour-coded all your folders and laminated everything, wow. No one says that. They say, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for caring. Thank you for listening to me. They say thank you for the relationship, not for ticking the boxes and meeting 3.2 outcomes. And to be in relationship, we have to have enough headspace
0: to notice people. I love to think about the trifecta when it comes to connection. Simple things that we can do every single day is to literally look people in the eye, smile and say their name.
1: And the other thing is in meetings, sometimes as leaders, we feel that we've got to be the sage on the stage delivering front. And I say, no, create the space where people are connecting with each other and value or celebrating or recognising each other. You as a leader don't have to go around doing it for everybody, but create the space and the energy in that space that allows people to feel seen and heard. And that's really what we're talking about when you're talking about psychological health and safety in the workplace as well, and when we talk about work design and the resources that we have to better manage the demand, it comes down to, do I have good role clarity? Do I know what my job is specifically as a year advisor, as a person running the debating team, as a person who's in charge of carnivals? Do I know what my role is? Do I feel recognized? Do I have some choices or do I have some autonomy? And in terms of workload, what are the systems in place to help me function well and do it well so it's not so overwhelming? What are the areas where we, I can learn from each other so I don't have to reinvent the wheel for every system that I create? In that space of learning to work smarter, not harder, is how transformative well being happens instead of trivial well being. Yes. And I've seen time
0: and time again the ones who can nail this, who can work in situations where there is high demand. The job demand is high. There is no doubt about it. But they also have high resources. They have the ability to be with reality as it is and navigate those challenges calling upon the
1: internal resources but also the external, the people. Absolutely. And keep in mind external resources are the people and the stuff that you have in school. So whatever apps are used, whatever programs are used, how data is collected, how data is navigated, what stories come from that, what decisions are made based on that, that's all the external stuff that can either pull us down or lift us up and it's constantly ebbing and flowing. We need to have enough self-awareness to know where we are on the seesaw. Yeah, the self-awareness is so vital because
0: what we can do without the self-awareness is create more demand. As soon as there's a quiet moment, oh, I'm going to redesign the whole unit plan and we're going
1: to change the font and the colour. And then we stay up to one o'clock in the morning to make sure the font's the right size, but no one cares. And so often that we do that, we create more work
0: for ourselves or we get a big, bright idea and think, wouldn't that be amazing? But we don't take that next step of thinking, do I have the capacity for it right now? Could we maybe do that next year or next term? We don't have to do it next week.
1: We become our own worst enemy. And I, I want to reiterate, just as you have too, Meg, that the job is tough and the demands are high. So that's just let's full stop right there. And next sense, we make it harder for ourselves. So sometimes when people I say to people, we make life harder for ourselves, I get the yeah but, yeah, but I say, put your butt right back down. We haven't finished. There's a lot to discuss and it's complicated. It's complicated, people, but having these conversations with the language of where are the demands for us this week? What resources do I have for me this week? What resources do we have for we? And what resources as a team or organization are we providing right now? Help us function and do the job, which is teach children. So when we have those conversations with this language, then all of a sudden, we have a better understanding of who is responsible for what when it comes to workplace well-being. Because if I, as an individual, am relying on executive my well-being, I will always be angry and cranky because they can't do it. If, as an organisation, I'm always looking to my staff to say, why are you not well? What's wrong with you? It will never work because the organisational decisions is impacting those individuals. When we stop long enough to actually have a shared conversation between how am I doing it for me, how do we connect with each other in meetings and socially, and you know, how do we collaborate and, and learn from each other? And then what are the workplace systems that we have in place to help people do their job well? When we start having those three different conversations, then all of a sudden you put together a strategic, realistic, meaningful staff well-being strategy. Until that happens, it will always be trivial and tokenistic. So much to think about, Daniela.
0: As we wrap up this conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Go
1: for it. I'm inspired by? I'm inspired by the phenomenal teachers that I learn from every day. I'm inspired by their heart. I'm inspired by how they go above and beyond. And I'm inspired by how they push themselves. And part of what I love doing is helping them see how amazing they are, helping them validate themselves and helping them calm down. It doesn't all have to be done today. When life feels hard? I walk, I journal, quite what most people think. I'm an introvert. And so um, I energize by not being with people. <laughs> well, I love being on the stage and having a laugh and, and engaging an audience. I like being by myself. So yeah, for me, walking and journaling. An underrated skill is? 100% self-awareness. People, stop, reflect, connect with yourself. Connect with your inner voice. Connect with your heart voice. Connect with your thinking traps. Challenge how you think. I always say to people, don't believe everything you think. No, we need to challenge ourselves and we do that through self-awareness to say, how can I be a better human today? And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to going away for a month. I'm taking a month off. It's unheard of. I'm going to Europe in August. Uh, my partner and I are going to Europe and I can't wait. As someone who works from home and has their own business and every day's a work day and every day is a holiday, I don't take a lot of time off. So even though that period, I'm either thinking, writing, reading or doing pieces. So I'm super, super excited to be taking a month off in office and going overseas and just having different headspace, different people, different spaces, different environment to literally restore my energy. Daniela, thank you so
0: much for being such an advocate in the space of teacher wellbeing and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast.
1: Meg, thanks again for the opportunity.
0: How fabulous is Daniela? It is so much fun when we get together to talk all things teacher wellbeing and how we can be well at work. And I really hope that this conversation has inspired you to create time to stop, to reflect, to notice what are the demands of your job and what are some untapped resources that you can draw on to meet those demands. To learn more about Daniela and the transformative work she does in schools, see the show notes for more details. If you love this episode, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonates most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast 86. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.